Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning, the Gospel according to Mark. I had a very interesting experience um, throughout this week. Um, Normally, when we wrap up a series, like we finished Titus, um, I've got a pretty good idea as we're wrapping up the old one, where we're going to go with the new one. And this one, it just didn't happen. And I was praying and, and asking the Lord, what direction do we go? And I got a couple of different ideas and started looking at different passages of Scripture and just didn't feel right about it. And then later on in the week, the, um, I think it was the Lord. It was either that or just a spasm of rational thought, one of the two. Um, occurred to me um, that we've been talking a lot. I've been talking a lot about our, our reason for being, you know, Christ's character being formed in us, Jesus' character fashioned in us, therefore we take his character to a a lost and dying world, that if we're going to talk about the character of Christ being fashioned in us, we probably should be talking about Christ, right? That's so boom. So here we are, Gospel of Mark. We're going to be talking about Jesus the next many, many weeks, talking very directly about our Lord. So uh, Mark chapter 1, and we're going to begin with the first 13 verses, and we're going to get right into it. So, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea was going out to him, all the people of Jerusalem, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. His diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened the Spirit descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and angels were ministering to him. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. As we look to it, Lord, our need, our great need is to hear from you, Lord, through your word, Father, by the work of your Spirit. So, Father, we lend ourselves to that. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I want to do a couple things this morning as we start into this gospel. The first is make some observations about John's gospel as a whole. Make a couple of comments that will help us frame our discussion. And then get into the gospel itself. All with the intent of allowing Christ, facilitating that work of the Spirit, to fashion Christ's character in us so that we can reflect it to a lost and dying world. So, let's talk about the gospel record, according to Mark. Uh, It is the shortest gospel, if you didn't know that. It's, by good measure, the shortest gospel. And it has some very unique features that are worth noting. Mark's gospel is unique. One thing that Mark does, and if you happen to have a Bible that has an asterisk every now and in the text, that's one of the unique features of Mark. Mark has a habit of using present tense verbs to talk about stuff that are in the past. And that was a a common recognized linguistic tool in the first century. Most authors used it, but John uses it a lot. 
In fact, even a couple times right in the text that we read, where it talked about Jesus coming up out of the water, although that's historical, even to a first century reader that had already happened, and John should be writing about it in the past, John uses the present tense. Jesus is coming up out of the water. Whenever you see that asterisk, if you happen to have those markers in your Bibles, that's what that means. And John is doing that to create this sense of activity and of motion, to create a sense of immediacy, if you will. It's, it's a recognized tool. People in the first century would have been quite comfortable with it, even if it was translated literally. It wouldn't have sounded odd to them at all. They understood what was going on. Verse 12, again, another example. The Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Literally, the Spirit is impelling him to go out into the, to create this sense of action, right? The other thing that John does a lot, again, it was recognized in the first century, but John does it a lot, is he uses the word immediate a lot. The word immediate or immediately. Uh, in, in its various forms, the particular word that is translated immediately is used not quite a hundred times in the New Testament, and John uses almost, I mean, Mark uses almost half of them. So like Mark is using this word as much as the rest of the Gospels put together. So Mark is really in tune with this sense of things happening, things going on, right? Um, he just uses it a lot. Verse 10, he uses it immediately coming out of the water. Verse 12, immediately the Spirit impelled him. Creates this sense of urgency or action. And for those two reasons, three reasons, his Gospel being short, the use of this present tense to describe things in the past, and his use of the word immediately, Mark's gospel is, is called the, Mark, the gospel of what Jesus did, more so than what he said. Matthew records an awful lot of what Jesus said. Mark emphasizes what Jesus did. Taking it a little bit further, some scholars have said, whereas Matthew speaks primarily to a Jewish audience, because he talks about things of unique and special interest to the Jews. And because when Matthew talks about a Jewish custom, he doesn't explain it. He assumes they know. Luke, on the other hand, is said to write to a Greek or Gentile audience. And when he talks about a Jewish custom, he stops and explains it. Because a Jewish audience, I mean, a Gentile audience wouldn't know that. Mark writes to a Roman audience because Romans were concerned with action, right? If you want to, you know, put a subtitle under the gospel of Mark, you get her done. If you're that kind of person, this gospel should speak to you. And, of course, John's gospel is universal. It's kind of a conceptual thing that just speaks to anybody and everybody. So we're talking about a gospel that's concerned with what Jesus did, the actions, not as much about what Jesus said. It's there, but the emphasis is on what Jesus did. Now, the question of who wrote Mark has been uh, much debated. Uh, in the church, it's been pretty well held, pretty consistently held, that the John Mark that's referred to in Acts chapter 12 was a traveling companion of Paul and Barnabas is the one who wrote the gospel. He was in an excellent position to do that, spending a lot of time with Paul, with Barnabas, and other early church leaders, right? Would have been a younger man that had plenty of access to the information. Certainly wasn't a disciple, though. Um, as far as when it's dated, when it was written, the church has consistently dated it in the late first century. Nothing really radical about that. But 
beginning in the 18th century, primarily in Europe. And the only reason I'm talking about that is this is a contemporary discussion in our culture today. Right? These issues are not just the issues of the academic world in the world in which we live. These issues are being discussed. Um, I, I talk to people for whom these are issues. Uh, beginning in the 18th century, questions about the authorship, questions about the accuracy, questions about the, the dating of, of all of the New Testament, but most especially Mark's Gospel, or at least including Mark's Gospel, began to circulate. And that's called textual criticism, bringing a critical attitude to the study of the text. It's full swing today, right? The thing to note is that is absolutely nothing new. One of the lies that is part of modern textual criticism is that it wasn't going on before it started in the 18th century, late 18th century. No, it's been going on all along. You can open up a 4th century um, book or something that dates back to the 4th century, a 4th century commentary on the Gospel of Mark, and you can find Chrysostomos discussing the authorship of Mark. It's nothing new. The church has been diligent, not always with the same degree of intensity, but over its 2,000-year history, the church has consistently asked these questions, not just about authorship, but about dating. Uh, the manuscript questions have been asked. They're all over the place as you go through church history. This is not a new idea. The difference is, up until the 1800s, the vast majority of discussion, criticism, if you will, was in an attempt to get the most accurate manuscript possible. But it did not assume as a starting point the manuscripts were wrong. That's what changed in, in the late 18th century, into the 1800s and till today. The starting assumption that the text must be wrong and finding a way to prove that. And what's fascinating, if you follow these discussions, those who would criticize the accuracy the transmission, the authorship of the text, invariably, in enough time, are proven wrong. So you go back to the, again, late 18th century, 19th century, criticism of Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark's gospel could not have been written before the 4th century. That was the consensus. Mark's gospel could not have been written before the 4th century. Then in 1960, P137, a manuscript is discovered. Now it's a little tiny manuscript, about this big. But it is clearly a direct quotation from the Gospel of Mark. And even secular textual experts looking at the physical manuscript itself must conclude it dates no later than the early second century. It's within a generation or two of Mark's life. So given enough time, these contrary criticisms are always eventually disproven. But until they're disproven, the ideas are circulated again and again and again. And so we live in a world where the very texts that we read are constantly under attack, even though it is wrong. We can have full and complete confidence in the Bibles we read because the church has, for 2,000 years, been diligent in examining, preserving, considering and evaluating the text. So that's what we can say, right? We've got a really, really good text of the Gospel of Mark, right? But, but now to the greater, the greater issue, and that's the Gospel of Mark itself, written to a Roman mind 
written about action, about what Jesus did. And let's just get right into the text because this is the important stuff. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I always wondered why a gospel that's so clearly written for a Roman mind, clearly written about action, would start with a quotation from the Old Testament about Isaiah the prophet. What about Isaiah's prophecy, which is clearly about someone coming as a forerunner of the Messiah? Why are Romans concerned about the Messiah? They might be concerned about the Christ, the anointed one of God, but why the Messiah? A prophecy clearly written about the coming of the Messiah and someone to come as a forerunner of the Messiah. Why would that concern a Roman? So I, I, I read through it carefully. Behold, I'll send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Right. Spend quite a bit of time all this week looking at those verses trying to figure out what in the world they mean. Why are they there? And as I read through the rest of the text, I discover something fascinating. That the word that is used in verse 3 for straight is the exact same word that is used in verse 10 and verse 12 that is translated there as immediately. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds kind of weird. That verse 3 could just as easily be translated and would have been read by a first century reader as make ready the way of the Lord, make his path immediate. Make sense out of that, right? So I had to take some time, and the reason I stopped to do this, rather than just say, hey, this is what it means, I, I would like, I would hopefully bring you into the process of how this works for me. So I'm not just standing up here saying stuff, right? This is stuff I've, I've had to think through and hopefully invite you into that process so that, you know, you can start doing the same thing in your own study. When you see something that doesn't make sense, rather than just walk away from it, look at it, pray about it. Maybe even do a little research. Yeah, online, great. Great access to stuff. And worst case scenario, give me a call. Right? So I'm looking at this, wondering what's this all about. How do we make his path immediate? Well, in our mind, the word immediate is a time word. Right? Like as parents, we tell our kids, clean up your room and do it immediately. I have parents looking at their kids right now. What, is, what do we mean by that? We mean like before you do anything else, go clean it. It's a time thing, right? That is not actually where this word comes from. It can be used with that connotation, but it's actually a different, a different sense of immediacy. Um, the Greek word is ephthys or ephthaos, depending on how you're using it, two forms of the same word. Ephthys, it's that word, right? It is made of two Greek words, right? The first part being f, f. Now, f, that sound that I have a long history because I just noticed it was in a lot of... Good. And when, when we were in Greece and we were studying the language, and as I mentioned before, ours was not a classroom study. We had an incredible teacher, Gideon Marineta. Three hours a day, three days a week, eyeball to eyeball, just the three of us, till Joyce bailed. Her excuse was she was having a baby. <sighs> then it was Marinette and me, eyeball to eyeball for three hours. 
great, great teacher. And um, just really going at it. And I was starting, it was about two years in, I was starting to get a grip on the language. Well, we had to go somewhere, some kind of ministerial function. And they figured, whoever was in charge of it, that I could get by with a navigator that didn't speak any English. So I'm stuck in the car, and there's this woman sitting in the seat next to this older lady, and I knew we were supposed to turn at some point. And so as we're driving down the road, and I'm asking her, do I turn here? Hello, hello, hello. And she was getting frustrated, because she kept saying, FDA, 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 FDA. And I, okay, what is FDA? What could that possibly mean? Wait a minute, F, FDA, F. I've learned from Marinetta in the words she's taught me that F means like open, like free, like the word for freedom. Elefteria is freedom, right? She was telling me just to go. Just go, right? Not to go straight, like confined, like this is the way you have to go. No, just go. Just don't worry about the side streets. I'll tell you when we get there. So I just relaxed and kept driving, and she was perfectly content. You know, I was so proud of myself for that discovery. After only being there in three hours, three days a week with Kerya Marinetta, that the next time I was in class, I, I couldn't help but share the story with, with, my, with, my, with my tutor. Kerya Marinetta, this is what happened. And when she said F, I figured out that F meant just go freely. And she put down her pen and she said, Yanis, you're starting to speak Greek. I wasn't sure if that was good news or bad, but it was true. This F has this idea of openness or freedom. And then the rest of the word means to lay or to place, to put in a place of freedom or openness. So immediate doesn't necessarily mean time as much as it means just do it, just go. Take the, clear the way of obstacles. That's what John the Baptist was all about, and that is why he makes sense to a Roman audience. That's all about reading about what Jesus did. Because when Jesus was on his way, there were yet obstacles in his way. And what was his biggest obstacle? The perspective of the Jewish people. They're expecting big military leader going to come, lead a revolt, raise an army, wipe out the Romans. That mentality was a major obstacle for Jesus to overcome. So John the Baptist shows up, and he starts by preaching repentance. That's not what the coming Messiah is all about. He's not about an army. He's about repentance from sin. He's about the changing of your heart. That's what the coming Messiah is all about, and that's what the Romans could expect too. So it starts with this promotion, or rather this, this prophecy, that is pushing the people towards removing obstacles, getting things out of the way, preparing our hearts so that Jesus can do what, what Jesus needs to do. Right? Verses 4 through 8 speak about John's ministry. He talks about the one to follow, the one whose sandals he's not worthy to unloose. Right? All the while, Jesus is coming to preach repentance. And then John says this, in case there was any doubt about what Jesus would be about, he says in verse 8, I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, he's just correcting expectations because the wrong expectations were a major, major obstacle to what Jesus was going to be doing. Verses 9 and 10, John's baptizing, people are coming, and we're told that in verse 10, immediately, here's this again, sense of, of openness, 
the heavens are opened and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. I have to suggest, and I can only suggest, I can't prove it, but I have to suggest that the idea of the heavens opening and the Spirit of God coming down must have been seen as something of an, of an equivalent to the sea parting and the people passing freely through without the obstacle, without the barrier of the sea. It's all about taking obstacles out of the way. A voice came from heaven, you're my beloved son, and you I'm well pleased. That word well pleased is eftokeo. I'm, I'm, I'm free, I'm open, I'm happy about what I'm seeing, the father says. Verse 12, immediately the spirit impels him to go out into the wilderness, right? Not so much a matter of time in the wilderness as an opportunity for Jesus to remove whatever obstacles might have remained in his own thinking. The Holy Spirit opening the way, which leads Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days. We'll pick up the account there next week. But what we have to this point is John the Baptist coming and opening the way for Jesus, taking out the obstacles. You know, one of the, the biggest misconceptions I have had over the years, I still struggle with it, I think probably we all do, is that Jesus just cruised, you know? I mean, yeah, the arrests, the beatings, the crucifixion, that was rough. But in everything else, he just, after all, he's Jesus, right? And he just, when they, tried to, when they tried to grab him and, you know, kill, he just, like, cruised, right? We have this image that Jesus didn't have to deal with a lot of obstacles. I don't, I don't think so. Jesus, in the incarnation, if anything, Jesus accepted an unimaginable number of obstacles, or if you will, restrictions to which he had not experienced before, if we think about it in a time sense. I mean, just think about this. We've talked about this before. Um, the one whom the entire heavens could not contain are now confined to the womb. If that isn't restricting, I don't know what is, right? He was dependent upon his mother. He was dependent upon those. He was dependent on John the Baptist to start the whole thing. He was dependent in some measure on the 12. He was always giving them stuff to do. He was dependent on those who supported his ministry financially. You know, when he got to the well of Samaria, he, the disciples went into town to buy bread. We have no record of Jesus ever, ever earning money to give them money to go buy. So that money had to come from someplace, right? He was dependent on people to feed himself and his followers. He was dependent on a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. He was dependent on people for a donkey that he needed to use. Jesus' ministry is characterized by dependence. And every time someone ministered to Jesus, they're taking obstacles out of his way. Things that would have prevented him from doing what he needed to do. Angels, we're told, right in this text, verse 13, ministered to him. What does that mean? He must have had a need. They must have met that need. Taking obstacles out of the way. Taking obstacles out of Jesus' way, right? So the message to me in the opening verses, me personally, in the opening verses of this, of this gospel, I have to ask some questions of myself. What are the obstacles in my life that I am allowing to remain? What are, the whole goal, remember, is Christ's character fashioned in me that I can then manifest the character of Christ to the world. That's tall order, right? What are the obstacles in my life that might be preventing that, right? Obviously, 
any sin, and I'm not talking about the moment you sin, I'm talking about the sin that we entertain, the sin that we tolerate long term. It just keeps on going and we don't do anything about it. Is that an obstacle to his character formed in me? Of course it is. But it's not just sin. It can be a simple attitude. Things like guilt. Guilt can put a huge barrier to what Christ wants to do in my life. Fear. Being judgmental towards others. Accepting, an, I mean, all kinds of attitudes, an accusatory attitude, all kinds of things we can think in our attitudes, right? How about expectations? Can they be an obstacle to what Jesus wants to do in our lives? You ever expect Jesus to do something and he didn't do it and you really got upset until it dawned on you that he never actually said he'd do that? Or, conversely, the expectation that I'm supposed to do something that he said in his word he would do. Does that mix things up? If you're unsure of that, wait till the next time you're doing something and somebody keeps looking over your shoulder. There's a better way to do that, you know. Yes, the expectations I have about what he's supposed to do and what I'm supposed to do, if they're mixed up, that's a huge obstacle to his character being fashioned in me. I can also ask, what are the obstacles in the lives of those around me that I can do something about to help them? That's also a relevant question, right? You know, there's a great story in Mark chapter 5. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap up with this and then one other, one other observation. Um, but first, Mark chapter 5. It's one of my f- absolute favorite moments in all of the Gospels. Mark, Mark chapter 5 it starts at verse 40. It's that scene where Jesus has been approached by the synagogue ruler, and he's going to go to pray for the, you know, his, the guy's daughter's healing because the daughter's at the point of death. And he's going with the synagogue ruler, and then they get interrupted by the lady that's been bleeding for 12 years, and they deal with that. And while Jesus is still talking to that lady, verse 40, um, I'm sorry, verse um, 35, while they were still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, your daughter has died, why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. What did he just do? He's identified an obstacle. He just identified the obstacle in the heart and mind of that synagogue ruler that was going to interfere with what was going to happen. He said, don't let that happen. Deal with it, right? Verse 37, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion. Any of you ever been around a Middle Eastern group when they're upset about something? The word commotion does not begin to adequately describe what it sounds like, right? He he beheld a commotion, people loudly weeping and wailing. These were professional mourners. They were paid to do this, right? And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took the child's father and mother and his own companions, and he entered the room where the child was. What I want you to zero in is that expression, putting them all out. What do you think that looked like? Now, there is a word in the language for asking someone to leave. That word is not here. The word that is used here is two Greek words. Ek, which means out. And the other word, which comes very d- directly into the English language as ballistics. You got the visual. Now, I don't know if Jesus actually took them by collar and belt, 
and gave him the old heave-ho. Or, if as I suppose, he simply said to them in a voice they decided they did not want to disobey, get out now. Why? They were a major obstacle to what he was about to do. And so he showed them the door, quite simply, and they left. That is our privilege as well. When there are people near and dear to us who cannot come to the place, and sometimes it's obvious to see that there are things in their lives that are keeping them from being where they should be, from the formation of his, of his character within them, it is our privilege as we are empowered and given authority by his spirit to show those things the door. God forgive us if we don't take advantage of it. So again, the message is simple. Evaluate my own life for the obstacles that might be blocking his work in me, whether they be sin or attitudes or wrong expectations, whatever they are, and, and keep an eye out for the obstacle in the lives of those around me that I can do something about. Because the formation of his character is what we are all about. And here's the good news. It doesn't have to be a big deal. A lot of times when we look at a concept like this, we think, this is going to be like a major event. Like, I'm going to have to spend at least two years in prayer before I tackle this, right? Like, we just kind of blow it up. But I saw something one day that made me think otherwise. Um, we were visiting my family, who are farmers in Greece. Lovely place, lovely little valley. Many, some of you have seen it. And um, Joyce and I love to walk, so we were walking one evening. And one of the things you noticed, if you've ever been to Greece or Scotland or Ireland, very much like this, they've got these stone walls everywhere. Every field is separated by these stone walls. And, and houses are separated from the field by these stone walls. And villages are separated from the countryside by stone walls. And then they got some stone walls that don't do anything. They're just stone walls, right? Well, it's obvious these are three countries where the soil is extremely rocky. And in order to grow anything, somebody, in the case of Greece, 2000, who knows how long ago, had to take the rocks out of the ground. Well, then what do you do with them? Well, you make a wall, right? Something maybe kind of useful, right? Or at least some place to put all the rocks. And so they put all the rocks in the wall so now they can grow things in the field. Pretty straightforward. But I saw something when Joyce and I were on our walk one evening that really spoke to me. It was an older gentleman, old farmer, walking out of his field, back towards his home. And as he was walking, he barely even broke a stride. I mean, he hardly even moved his head. But evidently, out of the corner of his eye, he saw a rock on the ground. You know, with, with weather and plants coming up and tilling the soil with a plow, there's always more rocks, right? We know that here in the valley. You think you got all the rocks, there's always more, right? Evidently, as he was walking through the field to his home, he saw another rock. And as natural and as casual as it could be, he just reached over and scooped that rock up, didn't even break stride, got to wherever he was going, and along the way, he passed a wall, and he just, boop, put the rock there like that was the spot waiting for it since forever. And I started to think, how many generations of farmers have been doing that? Walking through their fields as casually as can be, the most natural thing when they see something that is an obstacle to their farming, something that might damage a plow blade, something they might trip over, something that just takes away space that could be grown. When they see something that doesn't belong there as casually and as routinely as can be, they just pick it up and put it where it belongs. That should be us. That's our privilege as his people. Father, I thank you for your word, Father. We just start stepping into this gospel, and we see 
the importance, Father, to, to our Lord. Father, he went out of his way. He, um, he called uh, John the Baptist. God, you called John the Baptist to make Jesus' way immediate, free, open. As Jesus ministered, he continually was moving things out of the way. Sometimes very directly as when he cleared a room of people that were doing stuff he didn't want done. While there are other times it was in the lives of those around him as he spoke to their lives in a way that they could see those things taken out. Father, we're conscious this morning of how important it is that the obstacles be cleared from the path of our lives, Lord. So, Father, we simply ask this morning, Father, we're so grateful that we can have an expectation that you will help us in this very task, Lord. You would have us, Father, be attentive to the things we can speak to, the things we can address, the things we can move out of our lives, whether sin, attitude, expectation, whatever they may be. That we can even be helpful to those around us, Father, and encouragement. Sometimes maybe a strongly worded encouragement, Father, to remove the obstacles in our way, Father. And thank you, Lord, so much that as your spirit works in us, that kind of correction, that kind of action, Father, can be as natural as life itself. We thank you for the privilege, Father, of being your people and the work of your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.